Screen of Consciousness, the podcast where we discuss the films and television shows we love and try to explain why. And I think today's episode will do that more than most because we will once again dive down into filmmaking, practice and theory and look at some of our favorite films and probably some of your favorite films uh, and try to tell you how they're made. And we do hope that the sausage metaphor will not be applicable this time. Don't, don't be Jonathan. <laughs> sausage? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> if, if, if you love sausages, you don't want to know how they're made. <laughs> oh, okay. Yes, okay. Now I know what you're talking about. Okay, thank you for explaining that to me. I think some, some people like me, my brain's obviously not working today. So. <laughs> oh no, no, we're relying on your brain. <laughs> when, when you just said that, I thought of that Simpsons joke when Lisa thinks of what's in a sausage and there's like a boot and like a snake and like it's all puts things together, if you know what I'm talking about. If you know that exactly, Simpsons but joke. I think that's the metaphor, right? That we know that sausages well most sausages aren't made of the best kinds of meat necessarily but i think the best films are made of good ingredients of and course, i of think mise-en-scene that we shall yes. be discussing today is one of the absolutely most important ones wouldn't you say yes definitely i think mise-en-scene is so important now this is this is a very very general broad film theory uh term and most people learn this as kind of the first thing if they're doing film studies. And mise-en-scene is a French, obviously a French uh, expression, and it means placing on stage, apparently. I, I'm I'm assuming this is correct because I don't speak French. Um, but the idea is it comes of theatre, out of theatre, where, you know, obviously you, you create that stage and you build the set and you would place the objects and the, um, you know, chairs and all of the kind of stuff onto the stage and it would be there for a very specific purpose because um, obviously you're trying to tell the story through the way that you are making the actual entire stage play and stage you know staging of it I guess and, and the set so in film though it's a bit more broad than that so the idea is it's everything that's kind of in front of the camera has intentionally been arranged to tell the story to say something about the characters to maybe foreshadow plots of the story um, also it can include the costumes that people wear it can include the lighting it can include the sets the props everything so it's the idea that when you look at one shot it can really sum up an entire film or entire film's um, you know theme or narrative or as I said you know characters so because I would a... just to jump in because you didn't mention that and I know you you meant to that one of the things both on the stage and in front of a camera that's important to place are the actors. Right? Yes, of course. So yeah. the actual people, the characters are also in this way, they're kind of part of the scenery almost. They're still part of the mise-en-scene, part yes. of the staging, because it's very, and we will talk about film examples, um, where it's so important, the interplay between some objects that may be in front of the camera in a particular shot, and then which characters are in the same shot as these objects, where they are in relation to said objects or also in relation to each other. Yes, yeah, exactly. That's a good way to put it. It, it. it really is, as Dimitri said in his introduction, this is showing that everyone who is making the film is working together because obviously you have a set designer and that's the person who would build the sets or oversee building the sets, creating and choosing what props, working with the props people to kind of create that world and, and that you we're seeing and also working with the lighting and the cinematographer and with the director and with the actors. So everyone really has to work together to create this mise-en-scene. And the whole point of a mise-en-scene is essentially as well, creating a world. We're, well, we're world building because, you know, you can put a camera down and you can just film. 
but what you're filming is still saying something about a world because you know if I put a camera in my house you would be able to see what you know books I have on my bookshelf what DVDs I have on my DVD shelf you know what art I have on the walls or pictures I have that's making an entire world of me you know it's saying something about me even though I haven't necessarily done it intentionally to be filmed you know if you just took a picture of, of my house that that's what's going to say about me isn't it? it's going to say quite a lot um so so that's really what mise-en-scene is so we're going to talk about some specific examples that i think you know if you're interested you can watch yourself and you know think about and analyze and and then you know maybe you'll see it more often when you when you look at films uh, in the future and that kind of the first film I really wanted to discuss, because I think this is such a good example of mise-en-scene, because I kind of wanted to take the actors out of it, because I think dialogue and actors kind of muddies it, although I'm not saying it's not important, but I think it's, it's interesting to just look at scenes that don't have dialogue or actors in it, because that's more about the world building without the people saying anything. So the first one I wanted to discuss is the opening of Back to the Future, which is directed by Robert Zemeckis. Now, the opening of Back to the Future doesn't have any characters or dialogue in it. It does have... A woman talking on the TV on a news report, so it does have some some words. But most of the opening scene before the main character comes into it is literally just clocks. So we see multiple multiple clocks. We see hundreds and hundreds of clocks. I've got some screenshots here just so I could discuss them. But we see all types of clocks. We see old clocks. We see modern clocks. We see um, all brand new clocks. They're all at the same time. So what this is saying is that all the clocks are on time, and we don't know whose character's house this is yet. We don't know where we are, but we obviously know straight away that these clocks are all very important to the film. And of course, the film's about time travel. Um, so it's it's foreshadowing already. It's about time. It's about time travel. There's even a clock, and I didn't notice this until just now, but there's a clock that actually has um, a man hanging off of the clock, um, one of the clock hands <laughs> on it, which obviously is even foreshadowing the ending of the film, which is when Doc Brown has to hang off of the, the clock tower at the end. There's clocks that are animals that have moving eyes. There's newspapers on the walls as well that we see, which are about Doc Brown and his family, which kind of foreshadow him. So now we're knowing a bit more that it's his house. We see kind of a makeshift bed. We see presidents on the wall. We see this TV as well, which is obviously because it's in the 80s. The film was made in the 80s. It's an old-fashioned TV. And also uh, it's talking about plutonium that's been stolen, which is the plot you know one of the plots um, and then we see these machines which is a dog kind of a robot dog opener that doc brown's obviously created we still don't know at this point who he is but we see that this machine is obviously very clever it's a bit kind of rudimentary it's a bit rough and then the dog food opens and dumps onto a massive dog bowl and the dog bowl obviously hasn't been eaten out of for days so it's a disgusting slop of dog food so that once again that's telling us as the audience it's not clean the dog's not there and the man who lives there probably isn't there either so it's telling us a lot about the story it's also telling us about him as a person that he looks after his clocks but he doesn't clean the floor so you know what type of person is this he's a bit absent-minded he's a bit crazy um and then when we see the first shot of marty um, mcfly is when he comes in and we don't even see his face we just see his skateboard so what's that saying about him as a character he's just got a skateboard and he's walking in and and he puts his skateboard down and it rolls into a box of plutonium so this is telling us once again that the plutonium's in this room so we know the plutonium's been stolen by a character that we're going to see and also that marty mcfly loves the skateboard which is a important part of his character um, and then from there you know there's a lot more of other stuff in in the room there's like a massive speaker it's just a mess there's boxes everywhere there's very old-fashioned furniture 
Um, so really, we know that this house is a mess and it's disgusting. It's a dump. But at the same time, there's machinery and there's plutonium in there. So we're and we've already foreshadowed the fact that there's clocks and that time travel and that you know someone's going to be hanging off a clock later on in the film. So there's quite a lot to unpack in this opening scene, and I think it's just a really well-made scene. And and when you were talking before, Dimitri, about um, the camera work as well and the actors. This opening shot is in one take, or at least it looks like it's in one take. I think it probably is filmed in one take, but you know, it, it pans across this room and it and it winds down and it moves around. So we're also getting this sense of of the, the kind of physical flow of the film as well that we're kind of moving through time and moving through space, which is also what the film is about. I, I hope that wasn't too much, Dimitri, in detail. <laughs> I've passed out from the discussion. Exactly. So, is like, that's it. I can't deal with this. This is the end of the podcast. Goodbye. See you next week. Okay. We will. <laughs> I think we'll try to hurry uh, along a bit for the other films we want to cover because I do think it's great if we can give some very different examples. But I think, yes, Jonathan, I think you tell it really well. And it is a very well chosen uh, example. I think, you know, on this podcast, in multiple episodes, we've pla- praised Robert Zemeckis. Yes. And it's interesting to me because I'm not really that huge as a Mechas fan, but I think he's a very competent director, clearly. And I think th- this shows it. I would just mention that I think there's there's two levels going on here. There's the things we see, as we say, yeah. especially the clocks. Obviously, it's a film about time, about time travel, right? So it's very yeah. clearly tells us what this is going to be about. Uh, and then the foreshadowing, because you mentioned it several times, maybe just to explain it, um, because I'm not sure if we've explained this on this podcast before, but even if we have, I think it won't hurt. The idea that a director or a writer, because, you know, it exists in books as well, gives you some hints and some clues as to what will happen uh, later in the story. And I think especially in film, because film is this incredible marriage of pretty much all the other art forms, you can have so much foreshadowing because it can be done through dialogue, through acting, as you say, very clearly through the mise-en-scene through the choices by the production designer and the director of what to show through lighting, mm. but even through music. And I yes. think all many great films that we all love, even very big films, something like Star Wars, would have these moments where there's a kind of the bad guy's theme plays a little bit in the background while we maybe don't know that it's the bad guy. Um, yeah. Just as an example. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny you mentioned music, because as soon as Marty McFly leaves Doc Brown's house, the opening song for the titles is called Back in Time. So we know it's about time travel without even knowing the title of the film. So that's really interesting. And yes, Star Wars is a great example of music and also of set building, because the mise-en-scene in Star Wars create really creates that world. I mean, okay, Back to the Future is set in the real world in terms of it's meant to be in 1980 you know, 1985 in an in America that we understand and we know, whereas Star Wars is in a galaxy far, far away in a world that it's not real that we know of. Um, and, um, you know, that, so yes, so what you're saying about Star Wars is interesting because obviously, for example, there's the cantina, famous cantina, I can't remember what it's called exactly, Moss something, but cantina, that obviously it's very dark, it's kind of smoky, it's got lots of alien characters in it. You know, the way that they've made the bar there's these people playing music in the background with instruments that we've never seen before, um, and they're also aliens. So that is setting up this entire world of Star Wars, saying, you know, we're in outer space, and not everyone, most people aren't human, or at least the way that we see humans. Um, so that's completely creating this world of Star Wars, isn't it? I agree, and I think just to contrast it, and we can stay in Star Wars, um, is because that's sort of a very, it's well, it's a slightly 
almost childish scene. I feel the the cantina, and I know for some Star Wars fan, not fans, not their favorite. Um, <laughs> although also others do love it, but I think another example, a simpler example of mise-en-scene is this shot, which I think is the best shot in all the Star Wars films, and I think mm. I'm not alone of Luke Skywalker uh, watching the twin sons on Tatooine, oh, yeah. you know, where yeah. he's just standing with his back to the camera, yeah. uh, standing in the desert, and there's some, we see some of the structures, you know, in this sort of, um, you know, the kind of really s- simple, almost like a sand igloo where they live. Yes, a- yes. And then, you know, he's looking off, and there's the, the two sons, which I think is also in a much subtler way, but it's a great science fiction or fantasy, however you want to describe Star Wars, uh, shot because it shows, that, okay, two sons, this is clearly weird, because in, on our Earth we have just the one son. Um, yeah. And yeah. I just say, it's, it's, I think that's an incredibly beautiful shot, and it's it's simple, it's a less is more, which, you know, I don't think that defines George Lucas in general, <laughs> less is more, <laughs> but here he uses it very well, and you know, I think everyone loves that shot, and it's because we have the desert, we have... Uh, the dwelling we have Luke with his back to us and you know, looking ahead to his future. Yes, uh, his future, and the yeah. two sons. It's a, it's a fantastic shot, and that's also yeah. Mizan where they and use nature more than in the examples we've given so far. Yes, and you're right to say it's thematic because yes, he's looking forward to the to the future, but he's also at that point, you know, in a kind of a sad, kind of sad place as well. Is his his personality? You know, he's a bit like he he knows there's something inside of him and he's going to be a hero. You know, so it's kind of foreshadowing that. But also the sons as well, as you say, kind of foreshadowing the Death Star because we see the Death Star yes. also like that, don't we? From the, from planets, so it's kind of foreshadowing. Oh, he's gonna his fate is to kind of take down the Death Star and all that kind of. You know, I'm sure circles also mean something if you want to start going down Freudian routes. But just talking about the film itself, you know, there's there there is that that's a that you're right. That's a great shot, and also I think you're right to talk about those igloos. Um, well, they're not igloos, but the sand desert houses because they're very distinctive, very visual, and they do set up that world as well. Because you try, then you can imagine what it would it be like to live in a house like that. You know, they are literally living on a desert, and you know most people in this in this world, or well, some people do live in deserts, but they don't live in houses like that. So once again, it's creating this alien world, isn't it? And at the same time, I think this is we won't stay with Star Wars for much longer, but I think it's an important difference between the original Star Wars trilogy and all the films that have come later. And I think one of the reasons that almost everyone prefers the original films. It's, it seems alien and yet recognizable and tangible. Because we could, because it is kind of, I think, basically shaped and formed after, an, it's designed after an igloo. We kind of recognize that from our own world. Only here we use it, you know, to keep out the cold. There mm. maybe they use it to keep out the sand. But it's still yeah. something relatable in an alien setting. Whereas, you know, we get to the prequels and everything is CGI. And there's like planets, which are, the whole planet is a city. And there's like, and you know, it's just, it's, it, it becomes ridiculous. Or there's all these underwater cities. It's something that's kind of, well, it's not yeah, relatable so for unreal. sure. Um, well, I think exactly. I Whereas think, this is sort of yeah. still kind of real and yet also different, and I think that just works so well for the well, I think, classic I th- Star Wars films. I think you're right to discuss CGI because I think there's not many CGI films that are successful in terms of creating the Maison scene, unless they are like Pixar. Because I think you know, talking about let's not dwell on Pixar because we talked about them before. But for example, I think Inside Out is very successful at building a world inside the main character's head. Because of the background, they've created, you know, it looks like a brain. There's the balls of, you know, memories. All that stuff creates a world that we believe and that we can understand. Um, and I think most CGI in films, because, yeah, you're right, it just doesn't... 
I mean, okay, this is a good example. We talked about the Matrix before, but think the first ep- the first episode episode the first Matrix film was filmed in uh, I can't remember which city in Australia, but it was filmed in one of the cities in Australia. And when so when Keanu Reeves and you know the other characters are walking down the street, it's a city. It's a real city. Okay, they're they're walking through a city. Whereas I think compare that to the sequels, most of it's in sets or in CGI. And I just don't think it feels the same. The, the feeling of the film is so different because they're no longer outside in the real world with real people. They're actually just in a studio or in a CGI green screen room. And it's it kind of changes the feel of the film, I think. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I think it's a slightly different thing, blocking, which I think we can come back to in another episode. But it's also you know, where you place things and both objects and characters. And then I think... It's a part of mise-en-scene, and it's also, I think, a part of mise-en-scene that we have to actually understand where we are in a film. There's such a thing yeah. as crossing the line. Again, we could get back to that, but it's very important that you don't, you don't disorient the viewer. And I think this, everyone knows. Think about it, if you haven't before. In any big-budget CGI film nowadays, you never know where you are. Whether it's the new James Bond film, or it's it's a new Marvel film, or it's the new Star Wars films, very often, especially in the middle of the action, you have no idea where anything actually is. And of course, most of the time, because it's all made a computer after the fact, you had some actors jumping in front of a green screen. Um, I mm. think it's a huge issue that you don't actually feel grounded. And this is part of classic mise-en-scene from inside buildings, and we will talk about that, we will narrow it down soon, but... Mm. Even in the bigger in the bigger uh, scenes, and I would say you have a great example of The Matrix. On our last episode, we discussed Lord of the Rings. Just think about this, the Battle of Helm's Deep, where they did build a huge... They called it a bigature, as I said in the last episode, because it's, it's technically a miniature, but it's massive. So mm. they built a, a pretty big real-life fortress, and all the actors were there, and, you know, they filmed it with real things and i think when you watch that battle maybe you think it's too long but you know what's going on you can see where people are pretty much and yeah. think about that versus this idiotic sequence in the second hobbit film um where they're the desolation of smaug where they're running around you mentioned it last time oh, yeah. jonathan because it's such a terrible sequence yeah, where they, the they have this yeah. kind of stupid cartoony sequence with yeah. in inside the mountain the lonely mountain with the dragon chasing the dwarfs try that i dare you try to actually plan that out in your head where people are at any given time yeah where I you think, know is the dragon yeah. behind us is he in front of us is he above yeah. us where I, are the I, dwarves i think that's why i think it's interesting you use the word cartoony i think that's why that sequence is so, so yeah so stupid and kind of comedy because in a cartoon like tom and jerry or you know many any other con- like bugs bunny you can they play with that of you're running and someone jumps out of a door then they jump out of a window they jump out of places where you don't expect them to be because in real life that wouldn't happen that continuity wouldn't be there and you're right that's what exactly what happens in that sequence in the hobbit because yeah we don't know where they are we don't know where they're running through we don't know where the dragon is but in real life if a dragon that size was chasing you i'm pretty sure you'd know exactly where it was it wouldn't really be that easy to hide so i think that's where the the issue really is in that sequence um i have to say though talking about cgi quickly um i do think that the sequence in the first avengers film in new york with the alien attack works to an extent because 
it's set in a, a real city, you know, New York. So we, we can recognize like, you know, famous buildings like the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building. And I think that um, the director does make kind of an effort to make the camera kind of swoop through those buildings so that we do really understand where some of the characters are in relation to one another because obviously all the six Avengers split up at one point and they're in different places. So I think that's an example of CGI where it kind of works because he makes that effort to kind of jump, fly, uh, you know, zoom through the, the city to show actually this is where this character is in relation to this character. So I think that's one example where it kind of works. But then in other Marvel films, it doesn't work because as you said, they just cut between completely random bits and we're like, wait, was that person standing next to that person? I don't know anymore what's going on. So, yeah, it can be confusing. <laughs> I think we should talk about a film that we've also mentioned before on this podcast that we both love and where I think the mise-en-scene is extremely important yes. because it actually talk. It really tells us the whole nature of the story that's being told, and it's The Truman Show. Yes, yes. I mean, The Truman Show is so important because the whole point of this film, essentially, is that we're watching people watching Truman and we're also watching Truman. Um, and because of that, that world, and this is before proper reality TV show, because this was 1998, I think. Um, so, you know, now our understanding of TV shows, you know, the big brother, etc., that we're watching people and we're watching other people watch people is, you know, very fixed. But at this point, obviously the director had to make it very clear that we understand that at one point we're watching Truman as the audience and at one point we're the audience of the film watching people watching Truman as the audience. So for this, when they have the general public watching Truman on TV, I think the mise-en-scene is so important at this bit because they have various characters that they cut back to all the time. They're very sporadically used throughout the film, but they're also very important um, so, for example, I think the most famous person that you can think of is this man who's sitting in his bath watching the, the events unfold. Um, and just that's so short. He, he gets one shot through the film. There's nothing else. It's just him in his bath, one fixed position. The camera doesn't change on him whenever we see him. Um, but that whole shot says so much about his character because he's in the bath. Um, in the bath with him, there's a TV remote control that's in front of him on like a kind of glass... Um, what would you say, glass shelf, I guess, that's kind of floating over the bath. And then in the kind of foreground, which is out of focus, there's this kind of nice green pot with like kind of green bath, uh, what do they call those bath ball things that you used to put in when in the 90s? I don't think you do them anymore now. Do you know what I'm talking about? I've tried to... Uh, uh, what are they, like bath oils? Are they the, are they the ones that don't make like bubbles or... Uh, they don't make um... bubbles. It's like they're like balls that you plop into the bath and they used to kind of let out smells. I can't remember what they're oh, called. Oh, I but see. They, so, but, like, so, bubble bath salt or something? Kind like of. That. So he has, like, a, a dish of That's them, so and they're bright green. And they're there in, in the in the front, but they're in, in out of focus. But in the back, we can see his clothes kind of in a crumpled heap, probably in a wash bin or something. So, once mm -hmm. again, we're learning a lot about his character because, well, when he's happy to watch TV in the bath. So that says a lot about him anyway, because, you know, in those days, remember people, before iPads and iPhones, you couldn't really watch TV in the bath unless you were very rich or unless you wheeled a TV into your bathroom. So it was a very difficult thing. So I think this is why the shot is so memorable, especially if you were like grew up in the 80s or the 90s, um, because it's just bizarre to see this happening. So we, we're learning a lot about his character just from the mise-en-scene. Without him talking, we know a lot about him. And it's true for the other characters that we see. There's also these old women 
um, there's two old ladies sitting next to each other. They're both in their dressing gowns. One of them's clutching a pillow, which has Truman's face on it. They've got two cups of tea in front of them. And then in the background, which I think is really funny, there's a black and white picture on the wall, which is of Truman's wife. And it's obviously like a promotional picture of her as an actress. So they're clearly fans of the woman who's playing part of Truman's wife and I think once again this is saying that they're super fans but it's not just saying that these women or women you know love Truman because they obviously do they love his show they live for him it's also saying they're you know they're massive fans of his wife and they they know they don't care that this whole thing is fake and there's actors in this world that are kind of deceiving Truman so you know it's building up this whole image as well of of the world and the fact that everyone's playing along with this deception See, I just have to jump in. I never caught that, the wife in the background. I'm looking at this still now. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? This is, this is such a good example of how I think in all... I think, shall we qualify and say in all good films? Because unfortunately, I just don't think this happens in you know most of the films that are made just, you know, to, ju- just for the sake of you know everyone getting some, a, a paycheck. But with good films where there's a lot of thought and effort has gone into them and with really talented filmmakers, you mm. can do this where you stop the film sometimes at fairly random moments and there's these interesting things in the foreground, in the background. And, you know, again, with the lighting, maybe we'll get back to that, how, how lighting is used. It's just so incredible. And I think yeah. this film, we talked about this in, um, we talked about in season one, of our podcast do you remember the episode where uh, we discussed the Truman the Truman show? i think it was our pilot i think it was the pilot was it? episode okay, quite possibly we do love this film and it's just such a fantastic film and as jonathan says all of these details they 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 do so much because they tell us about one yes that how popular and how important to people's lives the truman show is two it makes a comment quite a critical comment on as jonathan says you know the the um you know, sort of this weirdly unscrupulous attitude they have that he's his whole life is a lie for their entertainment. I would mm. say three, we it's so clever because we, we can at the same time judge them, but then we also relate to them because I remember, mm. I watched the film as a child and I remember one of my, maybe the scene I remember the most, weirdly enough, is that man in the bathtub yeah. sort of clutching at, is it like the, the shower curtain? He's clutching at yes, something when Truman is, is about to drown. Yes, and, he is. And, He's going, hang on that, there or something like that. You know, yeah. at that moment, while we we may say that this man is slightly insane because it seems like he spends hours in the bathtub watching the Truman, watching Truman live because we keep cutting back to him in that bathtub. Mm. But mm. in that moment, he cares so much about Truman, you know, not dying. And yeah. we as the audience do as well. So in that moment, he's actually acting out, you know, we, we, pr- we project ourselves onto him and he you know these people they yes. both represent yeah. the audience that is us watching the film while at the same time we are also yeah. being made to kind of i guess uh well critique them judge them in, in yeah. a way because you know they're all yeah. part of this sort of not very nice situation i think that's but, incredibly clever i just like to interject here but we also like them this is the thing this is a film i think this is why it's a good example because we know nothing about these characters apart from the very small dialogue they get and the mise-en-scene. So we like that man in the bath. We like these old women, even though we don't know them, the way they, also the acting, the way they interact with each other. But I just like to make a really big point when you're talking about modern films and good directors, right? They use either a close-up or a mid-close-up or a medium shot. And okay, now these are once again, more kind of filmic terms, but the idea is, you know, if you have a close-up, it's mainly just showing the person's face. If you have a medium close-up, it's kind of from their 
what do you say, like neck upwards or from their kind of chest mm. upwards. A mid shot is kind of just from their kind of belly button upwards. So these shots are so important because one thing I've really noticed about modern films, they don't ever have close-ups. And I think one thing you have to do as a brilliant director is you need close-ups because the whole point of an actor is they portray so much just on their face. You know, human beings watch people through the eyes. You're always looking at the eyes. If you have a close-up, we can read people's expressions. We can understand where they're coming from. We can feel, not feel literally their emotion, but we can really understand their emotion if they're good actors. And this is the point with all these shots that we have of these characters that are my, incredibly minor. They probably have like less than one minute screen time each throughout the film but because they're filmed in these kind of mid shots or, or close-ups and we can see you know the way they dress the way they behave the way their back the background makes them you know as characters we're as you said dimitri we're 100 percent understand who they are we like them we f we empathize with them and we don't know them at all they're not even you know they're not main characters in any way and this is a competent director who, who understands this because so many films nowadays do not do this i can't tell you i sit there watching films and i'm like why haven't you put a close-up at this bit we need to get into the character's mindset and you can only really that's do so that with a good shot that's such an, a fantastic point jonathan because i hadn't actually thought about it but you're so right i have a a, a couple of things to expand on that one is way back when i um started my sort of filmmaking studying at the European Film College uh, in Denmark, in Abeltoft, and um, it's, it's a wonderful eight-month program where you learn a little bit of everything. It's a really good introduction to filmmaking because they make you hands-on try out the different roles, and, you know, that really gives you an, an appreciation for how important everything is. And our directing tutor there, um, he said, I remember when, because I had made a little film and, you know, had different takes, as you'd usually do, of, of the same sort of, of the, the same scene uh, and different uh, shot framings. Uh, and he sent to me because I quite liked one shot where we sort of saw the, you know, the characters, they were sitting, it's a fa it was a fantasy film, they were sitting, you know, with their backs against the tree. And, and, and we, I, saw, I showed some of the tree and their entire bodies. And this directing shooter, he saw that and he said, that's a TV shot, and you know this was back in the day before everyone loved TV. And he, so he did not mean that mean that as a compliment. He said in films <laughs> you do close-ups, yeah. And he had a point. That's exactly what you're saying. And then because we actually had filmed the close-ups, and then I, I used them, and we did film it, you know, with um, with natural lighting from a form of fire that we had made, and suddenly I saw that you actually I showed so much more by showing the character's face and then you know the 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 the, the light of the fire playing on their on their, on their face it's much more interesting even though there's less you could say there's less detail in a scene uh, and I think mm. this is maybe what modern directors just misunderstand they say oh but in a close-up we lose out you know the background and whatever even though of course if you're a good director which I certainly wasn't at the time and I, I'm not now uh, you can, but a good director can put some small and super crucial details, even in a close-up. You can have one thing yeah. beside the character's head or behind that yeah. really tells us so much, rather than just having scenery, which, by the way, I would say with modern films, I don't think they actually dress their sets in a very interesting way. I don't think no. there's that much to see. No. Um, Going back to your Star Wars shot that you were talking about which actually isn't a close-up because you know we, and we don't see the back we don't see his face i can't remember how that film is edited um specifically but i would bet money for the next shot or the one before that specific shot is a close-up of luke's face looking at mm. the sun and i don't know if it is but i bet you money it is because 
that helps us to then understand that shot in context as well, doesn't it? Because if we see his face when he's looking at the sun and he's looking you know, emotional, and then we see that shot of the two sons, we understand a lot more. Whereas you know, now, as you're saying, we don't have those types of shots because I think, as we know from modern film, it's all style over substance. They just think, oh, because we've got HD cameras and we plonk them on the floor, um, it's going to look good. We don't need to bother. We don't need to have all this stuff. Just it's fine. It will just look nice, and and the audience won't care. Well, I'm like, well, no, sorry. You know, it doesn't work that way if you're a good director. But anyway, I, I think we need to wrap this up. I'm so sorry, Dimitri, to cut you off there because we could talk for a long time about this, couldn't we? <laughs> but I think, I mean, this has been such a fantastic episode, and we didn't even get to Alfred Hitchcock, who is one of the greatest mise-en-scène masters. So maybe we should we should get back to that at some point. I also think I am so keen on us talking about editing. Yes. Uh, sometime soon because of course they they tell you uh well they say anyone working filmmaking will say that editing is the soul of cinema it's so crucial and i think i would love to have an episode dedicated to that because just as mizan said any good film any film that you love whichever film is well edited and it yeah. has good mise-en-scene. I promise you that. And as we've said before, um, listeners, whatever is your favorite film, try and maybe rewatch that and try to pay attention to the mise-en-scene. Try to mm. see, stop it at some important shots. Try to pause the film and look at what you're actually looking at in that shot. Mm -hmm. I think you might be surprised, as I was with Truman Show. Now, I've seen it lots of times. I never noticed that that the frame of the actor playing Truman's wife uh, yeah. in the background. I know. It's brilliant, isn't it? And I think there's a picture on the left-hand side of her. I can't quite see who it is, but I think it might be um, Christoph, the man who runs... Oh, I think uh, it's Ed, Ed Harris's character, yes, right? Yes, I think, I think it's Christoph, but I'm not sure, so I can't say for certain. But if it is, once again, it's breaking this kind of fake fourth wall that's in the film mm. but it's also breaking kind of the fourth wall with us as well so it's kind of it's very smart it's very smartly made um but yeah well that was yeah it was a great conversation maybe we should revisit this again in the future and and you know we can talk more about the films that we love and how clever they are um i so would love that we love uh, having some film theory i really hope for uh, all of you listening that this hasn't been boring that it's been interesting yeah. somehow engaging uh, please let us know and also because I think we can reveal that our most listened to episode is uh, our season one episode, uh, The Male Gaze, which yeah. has slightly surprised us because it's quite a theory-heavy episode. Uh, and uh, we're wondering if you like listening to, to stuff like that. Maybe you could uh, let us know which, uh, yeah. which aspect of film theory you would like us to cover perhaps in our next season. Yeah, well, you know, I can talk about film theory all day long. Um, not that that interests many people. <laughs> um, but yes, but no, thank you uh, once again for listening to us. I hope you really enjoyed it. And um, thank you to you too, Dimitri. And you will, we will do another episode next week. So hopefully you can listen to us then. Thank you very much, Jonathan. And bye-bye.